Good morning. I'm Rob Helms, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer Church. I have the privilege of reading the scripture passage that our guest, uh, Russell McCutcheon, will be uh, preaching on this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is found on page uh, 1025 of the Bibles provided for you. And as is our custom at Redeemer, I'll ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. So this morning, we, the scripture was read for you, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, that's our base text. I'm going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, reading verses 1 through 5, because we're going to get to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, but we're going to start in 2 Samuel 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, but I'm going to reference the entire chapter. So I need to say this before we get into it. Uh, as we look at this very familiar story of David and Bathsheba, we're going to address some very hard topics. Um, sexual violence. And so for, for, for you and, and if you have kids with you, I just want you to understand, I'm not going to be rated R or just be vulgar, but we want to deal with the text. And some of this stuff will be hard, but I promise you, we're going to get into hope. We're not just going to paint a bleak picture. And I think that's the truth of the gospel, right? Uh, we can't get to the good news until we first see the what? The bad news. And this is a dark chapter. This is a very dark chapter from one of the heroes of scripture with David and see how he sexually violated someone who was married to another. So we want to address it, but we're going to end with Jesus. So don't worry. We were going to get with him. So I'm going to be reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, you may have the ESV, but don't worry. It's going to be the same. Maybe some nuance with words. Second um, Samuel chapter 11, verses one through five. It says, in the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba? daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite, your version may say Hittite, 
David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Before going further, let's pray. Father, as I think of your word, I'm so thankful that you condescend. As I've heard some say, you speak baby language. Because unless you speak to us in the way you do, we would not understand you. But you've spoken to us. Lord, by your spirit, open our eyes to see the truth of your word. May we taste and see that you are good. And more than that, will you give us hearts to obey you as you give us life? In Christ's name, amen. In 1985, there was a classic movie that came out called The Color Purple. Now, I know there may be some young folk in here who don't even know what I'm talking about. And there are some people who are my age and older who was alive when The Color Purple came out. So if you have not watched it, I assure you I will ruin it for you. You've had about 30 years to watch it. Um, but this movie deals with a lot. Um, I didn't appreciate it when I was a, a young boy when this movie came out, but now as I'm older, there were a lot of difficult themes that this movie brought out, some of which were domestic violence, sexism, incest, abandonment, pedophilia, and poverty. The main character of this movie was a woman by the name of Celie, and when you watch this, you get the sense, if you've watched it, that how could anybody endure such trauma for so long? Because she endured it. Think of this with her. She had a child by her stepfather, the man who was designated to care for her and to love her sexually violated her, and she bore a child by him, incest and pedophilia. Her children were then taken away from her. She, she loved them, even though it was, it was way crazy and weird how she had these children. She loved them, and her children were snatched from her. Abandonment. Then she was given to a man by the name of Mr. I still don't know what Mr.'s real name was, but they called him Mr. And Mr., abused her in so many ways, domestic violence. If you watch this movie, it seems that no one loves Celie. The men in her life who should have protected her and loved her used their position of power to violate and abuse her. In the story of David and Bathsheba, we see how someone could use their power to get what they want when they wanted. David sexually violated Bathsheba, even though she was the wife of another man, Uriah. See, David's role as king was to protect the people under his leadership, but instead of protecting them, at least a couple that we see here in the text, he violated them and abused them. Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72 says this, he chose David his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. He brought him from tending ewes to be shepherd over his people Jacob, 
over Israel, his inheritance. He shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with his skillful hands. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, dare I say he failed in his duty as king. Now, for many of us, we, we may look at this story and, may see, and, and we may see ourselves in Bathsheba, but some of you may not have experienced this type of trauma, but stay with me. I'm coming to where you are. I want to include all of us in this story. For Bathsheba, well, for David, he brought one-way violence to Bathsheba. And in like manner, if you've experienced this, someone has brought one-way violence to you. The pain you've experienced is real, just as Bathsheba's pain was real. Now, I, I want to say this. I want to pause and say this. As we go through this, know and understand that Bathsheba was a real human. She existed. She is not a fictional character. And so she has these feelings, right? And just know what happened to her. She had to feel pain. But I also want you to know this, just as someone brought one-way violence to you, God in Jesus Christ brought one-way love to you in your pain. See, there is a redemptive narrative that God is writing in your life, and this is grace. Grace is love that seeks you out even if you have nothing to give in return. Grace says, I love you even when you seem and feel unlovable. See, for those of us who exercise power and authority on some level, the question is, do you use your power to do evil things? Do you use your position of authority to violate others, whether physically or verbally? Counselor Greg Wilson of the Association of Biblical Counselors defines abuse as the desecration of the imago Dei, the image of God, through the intentional misuse of power, both covertly and overtly, in words or actions for the purpose of gratifying self. The desecration of the Imago Dei. And you can desecrate that image of God either physically or verbally. You know, many of us may will say, I, I, I don't ever want to hurt someone physically, but how do we use our words? See, in recent, recent years and even longer, I know for me, I'm beginning to notice that there's a, there's a lot of abuse that takes place in religious institutions, places that we think are safe, but it comes out that even in spaces like this, there can be abuse taking place. Peter Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, shows leaders how to be aware of the sources of their power and how they use that power. See, as a pastor, I'm constantly thinking of this. How am I going to use my position of authority not to abuse and hurt others, but how can I use it to benefit others as they come into the space as we plant Reconciliation Church? How am I going to use a position? Am I going to lord it over someone and tell them to get in line abusing them verbally or even trying to do something physically? To them, or will I use this position to benefit my brother and sister? Jesus, who is God and man, has all authority and power, and yet he used his authority and power to benefit you and I. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, and Paul tells us to have that same mindset. But let me pause. Humility is hard, right? Because we don't ever want anybody to walk over us. We don't want to feel like a, 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 a mat on the floor that you can just tr stomp on. Right? You come at me, I'm coming at you. But if you look at the life of Jesus, people attacked him, but Jesus didn't attack back. Right? He hung on that cross, and I love, this is one of my favorite scenes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they, they, they are coming at him to arrest him, and they come with swords, and Peter has a sword, and uh, Peter wants to use force. So he cuts off a brother's ear. And this got to be, excuse my language, this got to be gangster. Jesus takes an ear and he puts it right back on this brother, whole. And then Jesus says some words that grabs me. He says, put that away. If I want to, I can pray to God. I can seek the Father. He would send me down. Twelve legions of angels. Like I, I can pray for an army to come right now and deal with this. But he chose not to. We, on the other hand, when we have the opportunity, if you come and attack me, I'm going to attack you. But Paul says, have the same mindset that Jesus had. See, David abused his power. He violated the sheep that he was charged with protecting. He cared for no one but himself in this chapter. And this is a dark moment. See, even if we have not experienced exactly what Bathsheba experienced, Dare I say that there are people in here who know what dark times are like. We know what difficulties are. We know what it's like to, God, I don't see you. I don't feel you. It's hard. I don't know how we're going to make it out of this. But I love the truth of this statement. You may not be able to trace God's hand, but you can always trust his heart. See, if you're in Christ Jesus, you've got to know how this ends. We have the book, y'all. We just got to get in it. We know how this ends. Yes, there may be some difficult things that take place in my life, but if it happens to be that my life ends on this earth in a tragic way, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I have hope, even in the darkness of all of this. See, in the midst of hurt, we still acknowledge Jesus as king and the fact that he is coming back again. Let me say that again. Jesus is coming back. We're just in the in-between time waiting. See, for Bathsheba and Uriah, we, we noticed that their hope was in Yahweh, the true king. The beauty of this story is that for Bathsheba, even in her pain, God would use her to be in the lineage of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. In other words, God applied grace to Bathsheba's disgrace. And God has done the same for you and I. Bathsheba's pain impacted my destiny and your destiny. So today as we look at Bathsheba, I, I need to say this again to this group because I know I'm looking at a bunch of folk who are educated. You have degrees on top of degrees and you might like to take some notes. I see some notepads on some laps right now and you're ready for three points. I don't have any. We're simply going to tell the story, y'all. This is a narrative. We're just going to tell the story. I'm not going to read every verse in 2 Samuel, but we're going to reference it. And we're going to get to Matthew chapter 1. 
But we want to see how God would write a story for Bathsheba and include her in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Matthew tells us is the true king. So let's get to it. Let's look at this story of David and Bathsheba, starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 11. So the story begins like this, in the spring when kings march out to war. So what's taking place here? In order to understand this, we need to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 10. So what happens there? Well, the Ammonite king died. And it seems that David could have been friends with him. And when he died, David wanted to send some of his men to go to the Ammonite king's son and comfort him. Just like, hey, y'all yo, yo go tell him my condolences are, are with him. I'm, I'm thinking of him. It's like we would say to someone, look, I'm praying for you. I'm really praying for you because I know you're hurting. But the Ammonite king's son has some fools in his corner. Have y'all ever had some friends around you that when they told you something, they said some of the dumbest stuff, but you still listened to it and they got you in more trouble than before? Okay, it's just me. Um, so, so, so he, he has these friends. So these, these guys go to Dave, I mean, from, from David to this king, and they come and try to offer condolences, and his friends are like, man, don't listen to them. David trying to do you in, brother. Like, he's trying to take over. And I guess they talked so much in his ear that he believed that, and they disgraced in a culture of honor and shame. They disgraced these men, cutting off beards, cutting off their clothes at the hips, and sent them away. And when David saw this, David gets livid. You shamed us. It's on and popping. War. Let's go. So they go to war, but then it stops. Probably, some theologians say it's probably in winter when the, when the conditions were not well and they couldn't fight. Well, we pick it back up in this chapter, and now it says in the spring. So now the conditions are good for fighting. Uh, they go to war about a one year later. Now, Normally, David would go to war with his men, but the text tells us that David stayed home. Now, when I've heard this preached, I've heard more preachers say that David was in sin by not going to war. I get it. He is the commander. He should have, but I don't think you can get that from this text because there are other places of Scripture that says that the men say, David, don't come fight with us. Stay home because you get out here in this, this, this smoke, you could get killed, and if you get killed, What's up with our king? We don't have a king now, so maybe they say stay home. We don't know why he stayed home, but all we know is that he stayed at the house. And one evening he went to the roof and walked on the roof. Now, his house, the palace, was probably located on the highest point, the highest level of ground in the city, which would have given him a bird's eye view of everything. He could see it all. So maybe he's just walking and he's looking, he's chilling, walking on the roof. And the text says from his vantage point that he saw a woman bathing. Now it's about to get interesting because he then sends someone to inquire about her and found out that this was Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite. Now in seeing her, his desires were aroused and it seems in his mind he says, I want her now. Y'all know David had not just one wife at this time. He had many. But now instead of looking in his own house and seeing that he had wives, he sees someone that's not his wife who is the wife of another, and he says, I want her. It's important to know that she did not entice him. She did nothing 
to him. She was minding her business. And so it's there that I want to encourage anyone this morning who has been violated from someone, by someone else, you don't have to walk around in shame thinking you did something wrong. See, don't play that game in your mind thinking, if I had not worn that dress, or if I did not speak to that person, then none of this would have happened to me. Don't, don't play that game in your mind because that's not your fault. Remember, David did not, I mean, Bathsheba did not entice David. James chapter 1 verse 14 says this, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Again, David had many wives. He could, but as king, he could do whatever he wanted to do. No one was going to stop him. He could use his power for the good of others, or he could use his power to abuse. But uh, Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, warned Israel that this kind of thing could happen. Like, you want a king, you don't know what you're asking, so you need to be careful. And so Samuel kind of lays out what a king would do. And he would say some things like this. He says, he takes sons and daughters and puts them to use in his chariots, horses or running in front of chariots. He takes male and female servants. He takes a person's best fields. Uh, in other words, the king could do what he wanted to do and no one was going to stop him. But David was supposed to be different. The text says uh, that David was a man after God's own heart. But here, David is not, like, he's not acting like that man that God made a covenant with in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is doing some real dirty stuff in this chapter. Uh, he knew what the penalty for adultery was, yet he still sent someone to go get Bathsheba. He got in the ass sex with her. Now, again, I told you I, I, I wanted to humanize the people in the text. And so what was Bathsheba thinking? What was she thinking? when she was in her own home, minding her business, taking a bath? Was she thinking of her husband and the last time she kissed him as he was going out to war? Because if you read later in 2 Samuel, you'll find out that Uriah was one of David's top men of war. Like, he was a battler. Like, he was that guy, if you're getting in a battle, like, come on, brother, you with me. Get right here. I don't want you moving away from me. He was that guy, and, and Bathsheba was married to him. Maybe she is like, I, I miss my husband right now. And then there was a knock on her door, and someone says, the king wants you. So what is she thinking now? Why, why does the king want me? What did I do? Uh, is, what is going on here? She doesn't know. But what we do know is when she got into David's presence, he had sex with her. He violated her. He got her pregnant. See, we should never gloss over abuse. See, while there's grace for the abused and the abuser, as a church, we must be intentional about not rushing or dictating the process of healing for the abused. You know, we tend to just, when people are hurting, to uh, hurry and get over it. You know, it's going to be okay, and we try to push them out of lament. But we can't rush that. We cannot rush that. See, sin creates the illusion that you're in control of it. When I was little, and I shared this with the first service, I, I'm old enough to remember when vans looked like a box, and they were long. They were just big. Uh, and I'm not talking about a bus, but it was just big. You probably had eight rolls in it, maybe. No, not that many, but you had a lot of rolls. Um, and my aunt used to have this van, and when we would get with my aunt, she didn't stay far from us, Every time we rode, I would always ask her if I could drive. 
right? And I'm, I know I'm not even eight years old, but I want to drive. And so she, she, she would allow me to sit on her lap and drive. And there was a stadium right by her house. And maybe she would take me into the parking lot of the stadium and I would drive around or we would be on a small street and I would drive. And so I'm thinking I am driving. It was so fun, right? But the truth is I was not driving anything. Why? My feet were not on the brakes nor the gas and I was not really controlling the wheel. Her hands were really controlling the wheel. You see, sin creates the illusion that you're in control until it decides to bite. Aren't we like David? Aren't we? Aren't there times when we think that we're in control of sin? That we could get away with what we want to get away with because we have the power. David violated Bathsheba to satisfy his sinful longings, but things changed when she sent word to the king and said, I am pregnant. So now in verses 6 through 13, David has a problem on his hands. Bathsheba is pregnant, and now he begins to craft a plan to cover his sin. So stay with me. We're going to see how God is going to redeem this story. He sends word to Joab to have Uriah sent back to him. And so that's exactly what happens. Again, Uriah was a real man. And so now I want to engage my senses. What, 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 what do I hear? What, what, what do I see Uriah thinking? You know, I don't know. So reading the white spaces of scripture, I'm, I'm trying to think, what was Uriah, Uriah thinking when Joab tells him, look, David wants you? No, the king wants you. Is he thinking, is something wrong with my wife? Is, is she dead or, or am I in trouble? We don't know what Uriah was thinking. All we do know is that David greeted him and asked him how the troops were doing. Really? Now, I'm fighting. You could ask Joab that, but you get me and want to ask how Joab and the troops are doing. Now, one theologian notes the answer Uriah gives is not included in the narrative, a significant gap which symbolizes that David just let him talk, not paying any attention to his account. See, David didn't care nothing about what Uriah said. He just wanted Uriah to go home and have sex with his wife so that when Uriah found out she was pregnant, he could now get be in the clear and no one know that that's David's child. But Uriah would say, here is my child. The problem is Uriah didn't go home. His brother was more committed to David, to God, to David and the rest of those men that he went out of the palace and laid at the palace door and slept with the servants. But David wanted Uriah to be like him, to go after his own desires. But Uriah was a man of integrity. And so when Uriah didn't go home, David went and asked him, why didn't you go home? Notice in verse 11 what Uriah says. This is amazing. Notice the first thing he says, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Notice that Uriah mentioned the ark first. Remember I said earlier that Uriah, who is a non-Jew, was more committed to God than David was in this situation. He says the ark. Israel and Judah are dwelling 
intense. Uriah trusted Yahweh and he cared more about the things of God than David did. Then in verses 14 through 25, David doubled down on his plan. See, he wanted Uriah to go home, so he adds another layer to this plan. He gets Uriah drunk. He put that grape in his system and probably a lot of it. So much so that he's thinking, now that he's drunk, I can get him now to go on home. But y'all know what Uriah did. He went right out and slept in the same place he did before at the, at the master's door. He refused to go home. You see, Uriah drunk was more righteous than David, sober in this situation. Now, David adds another layer to this plan. His plan becomes more sinister, so he writes a letter, and I'm sure he seals it with the king's signet, which means this is official. And he puts a death warrant in Uriah's hand. Uriah is carrying his death warrant because he can't open it and read it to Joab. Joab gets the letter and he puts Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle so that Uriah ends up dying. Question, what links would you go to to make sure that you are not found out? How far would you go to make sure your sin is not discovered? David put a plan in place to have one of his best men killed, his best warriors, because he couldn't control himself sexually. And he wanted to cover up the fact that Bathsheba was pregnant. Brothers and sisters, sin always has collateral damage. Always. See, what David thought would be a sexual interlude turned into a pregnancy. The murder of Uriah, a cover-up, lies. And of course, let's not forget Bathsheba. Uriah died. He died in battle with the Ammonites. What David wanted to happen actually happened. Now, if you continue to read, you will, you will see that David didn't even mourn over Uriah. You know, when, when Uriah died, Joab then sent a messenger back. You need to tell David, we had some loss here. You know, some, some soldiers got killed. And he said, if David got mad, tell him also that Uriah is dead. So when David actually hears what's, uh, heard what's taking place, what had taken place, he didn't even mourn. Verse 25 says, this, that David told his messenger, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. His goal is accomplished. David, I mean, Uriah is dead, but all was not well. Later on in the story, Bathsheba, after this, Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead. Ah, see, here I had to sit in this, this portion of the text for a little while. Bathsheba, a woman who was married, who was sexually violated, is pregnant with some other man's child, found out that the man that she loved is dead. And she mourned. This is not just tears rolling down her face or just a couple of sniffles. No, if you study that word mourn, I'm sure she was all out screaming and yelling in her room. She is hurting. And when I looked at this, I was reminded of my grandmother because uh, seven months ago, we moved here. Right before we moved here, the man, the pillar in my family, my grandfather, who was 98 years old, took his last breath in the bed that he and my grandmother slept in. He died in the house. My grandmother and my grandfather were married for 76 years. Um, they married in 1943. Every day she looked over and she saw the man that she said, I do to, that they had five kids with that she would wake up and cook 
breakfast for lunch and dinner every day and did it with joy because I got, I got chastised by this because my wife and I were spending the night there one night and, and my grandmother was trying to get up in her 90s and cook. And I said, Mama, you don't have to get up and cook because we called her both mommy and daddy. I said, Mama, don't, you don't have to get up and cook? No, I will go get some food. She looked me in my face and said, that's my husband. And that let me know the depth. And I already knew it, but the depth of her love was seen in that. And so when I see Bathsheba, I just think of my grandmother who had to look, and she wouldn't even look at them, put her husband's body in the ground. That even when she came to the wake, she saw his body and screamed and turned around and went out. Bathsheba mourned, but then the text said when her time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore a son. For everything, for David, everything seemed to be okay. But everything was not okay because the last verse says, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. You see, sin is like a woodpecker. It keeps pecking at your life. Now, when you look at the individual pecks, it does not seem so bad. But when the job is over, you got a hole in the tree of your life. You're destroyed. You're messed up. But what does this story, Russell, have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. Going to Matthew now. Bathsheba is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Hang with me. We're about to be done. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Notice she is not even named Bathsheba. She is called Uriah's wife. What's interesting about Matthew 1 through 6, this genealogy now, I'm sure I got some people in here that when you read a genealogy, you just skip over it because there's some names you can't pronounce. And you look at it and it's like, man, I don't want to know who begat who and who fathered who. I'm just going to skip to the real stuff. But there's a lot of meat in these first six verses because genealogies normally don't have women in them. And here they got four women. If you look at all four women, every one of them are attached to a scandal. Not only that, they're non-Jews. So now notice the original hearers who would have been Jews, because Matthew is writing to show the Jews that Jesus is the true king, even though he comes from some not-so-good uh, lineages with Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and now the wife of Uriah. The original hearers would have said to Matthew, how dare you mess up our bloodline, because our bloodline must be pure. We don't marry outside of our race. Sounds familiar? See, we live in a time where we think, even though we will not say that outwardly, that to keep our bloodline pure, you can't marry outside of your race. The Jews would have been appalled at this. How dare you not only have a woman in this genealogy, because genealogies don't normally have women, but then you're going to have Gentiles, non-Jews. Don't disrespect us like that. But what this shows me is that Jesus got some other blood in this system. That's important for you and me. That is very important because this genealogy begins with a reference to Abraham, which points to a blessing to the nations. Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I'm going to you, you're going to leave your folk. You're going to go to a place I'm going to show you to a land I'm going to give you. Uh, you're going to be a blessing 
to nations. You're going to be a blessing. And this is pointing to that because in this genealogy, Matthew includes both Jews and Gentiles. This is what the church is made up of today, y'all. Trust me. Bathsheba's story directly impacts you and me. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, Paul says this. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So, y'all, we have been made right with God and made right with one another. Jesus died to tear that down. In his flesh, he made no effect of no effect the law that consi- that, uh, of the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man. Made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Bathsheba's story was tragic, again, but her story impacted your destiny and my destiny. In her pain, we see God's mission for the inclusion of Gentiles, and this is important because God can use your pain to be a blessing to other people. David sinned against Bathsheba, but God was the one writing her story. What I love is that God was not aloof to what Bathsheba was going through, and neither is he aloof to what you may be experiencing. God has a plan to take your pain and the trauma that you have experienced and to mold and shape a beautiful story that will not, even, that will not only be a blessing for you, but be a blessing for your neighbor. Impacting generations. See, if you've experienced some kind of trauma, I want you to know that God has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He knows right where you are. Injustice will not have the final word. Abuse will not have the final word. God's justice will triumph. And we're eagerly waiting for that day when Jesus comes back to make all things new. When there will be no more tears, no more injustice, no more trauma, no more pain and suffering. Also, there may, there may be some here who have been the abuser. There's hope for you as well. See, we didn't get into it, but in the next chapter, David was confronted by his sin, by, uh, in his sin by a man, a prophet named Nathan. And it was a beautiful story that he told. And when David heard this, instead of having a hard heart, David repented. And you can see the beauty of that repentance in Psalm 51. You see, our God is holy and righteous, but he is also loving and forgiving. I want to fall on my face and worship him that he would forgive me. I deserve death. I deserve to be separated from him. I'm not right. But oh, praise God for 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who did not know sin to be sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. Just like you, I love, a, I, I love a good story, whether that's in a book or in a movie. I, I like good story, especially if it has a historical feel to it. See, in most good stories, there is a hero. And this hero may be uh, uh, the same in content, 
but different in context. In normal stories, you would see something like the hero dying for the victim. But the gospel flips this narrative on its head. And, and while many of us may not have done what David did, in Jesus' story, we're the villain. And in his story of grace, the hero dies for the villain. We are the villain, brothers and sisters, and the same grace that David received is available for us today. As I close, I want to give you four application points that I borrowed from the Gospel Coalition, an article from the Gospel Coalition. The first thing I want you to know is this. God does not condone violence against women or against anyone for that matter. He does not condone violence on no level. The second thing I want you to know is that God offers the counsel we need. God gives us Christian friends. He gives us godly pastors, legal professionals, and even law enforcement. But most importantly, he gives us his word. Thirdly, Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. You don't have to hide your sin because God already knows. He already knows. You know, our children try to hide stuff. Go clean up your room, and they hide everything under the bed, right, thinking no one is going to see it. I'm sorry, kids, if I expose you. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we can't hide from God. God shows us how much he loves us in Jesus and his death on the cross. And finally, I want you to know, God has not forgotten you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have not forgotten me. I thank you so much that you love me. I thank you so much that you love your people. Lord, I'm thankful for this body, and I pray that you would do mighty work in and through them. And I pray that they realize that they're able to do that only because of the gospel. To you be the glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.